Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And man, to be a fly on the walls of that conference room at the Supreme Court today. The nine justices met for the very first time since that leak just 10 days ago, the one that shook not only the high court for the unprecedented breach of protocol, but also the entire nation because of what that leak actually revealed. A draft majority opinion that stands to reverse the landmark Roe v. Wade ruling if the final opinion looks anything like the draft that we've seen. And now there is another leak, also reported by Politico. Apparently, the draft opinion that we saw that was dated February, well, not much has changed as of May. That same draft opinion is still the only one that is circulating inside of the high court, meaning no justice has yet signaled that they would switch their vote or that perhaps the conclusion has substantively changed to now uphold Roe v. Wade. Now, CNN has not confirmed the most recent Politico story, but keep in mind that a majority opinion is not the only kind of opinion that could very well be forthcoming. There is always the potential for what's called a concurring opinion, one where a justice writes separately their own opinion that says that they have reached the very same conclusion as the majority, but for different reasons. There could also very well be, and given the composition of the court, one would frankly expect a dissenting opinion. There could be drafts of each kind that are also circulating or might not even have yet has been shared at this point in the calendar. But either way, the justices met alone, behind closed doors, amid all of this. And when I say alone, I mean no clerks, no staff, only the nine of them. So, of course, there are loads of intrigue as to what they said to one another and really the tone and how this leak might change how they will operate going forward. And it comes after an investigation into the leak has already been ordered by Chief Justice John Roberts for the marshal of the court to take on. Now, some sources familiar with how SCOTUS operates say that that probe could lead to some very uncomfortable privacy issues, which is a little bit ironic, and perhaps trigger further tension within the court and further erode trust. But really, it's too soon to assume that it will. But meanwhile, the explosive reaction by some to the news of the looming abortion rights decision, whatever it might be, it also raises some serious concerns about the safety of the Supreme Court justices. Over the weekend, we saw protesters demonstrating outside of the homes of Justices Roberts and Alito and also Kavanaugh. Now, that prompted the Senate to quickly pass a bill that would expand security for the families of justices. And two Republican governors in states where the justices actually reside, in Maryland and Virginia, they're actually asking the Attorney General, Merrick Garland, to step up to the plate and investigate. Now, the White House... The White House is not condemning the protests at these homes as long as they're peaceful. And there's also some pretty mixed reaction on Capitol Hill. There's protests three, four times a week outside my house. That's the, uh, the American way to peacefully protest. So as long as they are peaceful, 
that's, that's okay with me. I think it's reprehensible. Stay away from the homes and families of elected officials and members of the court. It appears this may possibly be flat out illegal. There's a federal law on the books that criminalizes, quote, pickets or parades, end quote, with the intent of influencing any judge, juror, witness, or court officer at locations, listen to this, that include a judge's residence. So who's right? Let's delve deeper into all that and more with CNN legal analyst and Supreme Court biographer, Joan Biskupic. She's the author of The Chief, The Life and Turbulent Times of Chief Justice John Roberts. Also our chief legal analyst and former federal prosecutor, Jeffrey Tubin. I'm glad you're both here, particularly tonight. And I want to start with you, Joan, because one of the people whose homes they are protesting in front of is the chief justice, who I note is not yet a part of that draft majority opinion. We don't really know where he might stand on these issues, but by virtue of his position, your book, I think, is quite apropos, the life in turbulent times, shall we say. What do you make of these comments that suggest that it might even be illegal or at least reprehensible for people to protest in light of this draft opinion? Well, first of all, I I think that, you know, people are right to protest peacefully. You know, as uh, Chuck Schumer said, it happens all the time. uh, And, you know, law enforcement officers in many of these municipalities have said they're not going to arrest people if it's peaceful. Obviously, Uh, Some people can feel like this is not the route to go. But the important thing is that, you know, we still don't know what actually is happening behind the scenes and what this draft will say. Uh, I think people want to put pressure on these justices, but there's plenty of pressure already in that room, as you sketched it, Laura. You know, you referred to the chief justice, and I can tell you that he is not sitting around doing nothing, just waiting for uh, to see what happens with the draft that Sam Alito has written, I would suspect that he is privately working on his own alternative draft. He may be privately shopping it to other justices to see if he can possibly still still peel off one of the conservatives for some sort of compromise. We still have about eight weeks left. So even though Politico has reported that there were no other subsequent drafts, there are many other ways that the justices are communicating just so you know, once Sam Alito would would have sent around that first draft, every other justice would have at least sent him a memo saying, you know, I'll join it, or I'm thinking of a concurrence, or I'm waiting for the dissent. There's communication that immediately follows that, even if it's not an actual draft. And then the others are, they do tend to send memos that they would circulate to all. But my experience is, especially with the chief, that he would work privately sometimes. He did that certainly with the Affordable Care Act in 2012. And we know in the past with the 1973 Roe v. Wade, the 1989 abortion case that where the justices stopped short of reversing Roe. And then certainly in 1992, when the justices stopped short of reversing Roe, little factions had broken off and were working privately. So I, I anticipate that some things like that are going on. But I do want to remind you, Laura, and certainly our audience, is that the key conservative justices who made sure that there were compromises back in 89 and 92 are not like our conservatives today. The conservatives we have today are far to the right. And I would not expect somebody like Sam Alito, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, and probably Amy Coney Barrett to go for a compromise. Brett Kavanaugh, 
possibly, Laura? You know, the word that sticks out to me, what you've said today, and I think it's something that many people are pointing out, Jeffrey, is the idea of this expectation of privacy when it comes to opinions written by the Supreme Court and the expectations of being able to have private deliberations about one's personal thoughts and beliefs about a particular issue and having that privacy behind closed doors. And for many, they look at this as very rich. The idea of the Supreme Court has expectations of privacy, but if this draft opinion is to be made final, it takes away a zone of privacy and those expectations of privacy from women who want to have agency over their reproductive rights. And so we think about the, the leak in this instance. What do you make of the focus now being really more so at parts on the leak itself, Jeffrey, and the protests surrounding as opposed to the substantive draft conclusions? Well, I think this controversy illustrates that Republicans are nervous uh, because um, they are choosing to talk about the leak. They're choosing to talk about the protests at the home of the uh, the justices rather than the substance of the opinion, which, if we believe the opinion polls, is unpopular. I mean, this is an opinion that will reverse a constitutional right that women have had in the United States for 49 years and um, lead to even more draconian restrictions on people's rights. This is something that the core of the Republican Party has believed in and fought for for many years, but it is not something uh, that the, the broad majority, including most independents, uh, want in, a, in American mm. life. So I think that's why uh, you see Republicans, you know, rending their garments over the lack of privacy in the Supreme Court, over these these really rather uh, docile, if annoying, protests. That that they'd rather talk about that than the the loss of rights that American women face. Well, you know, it's interesting. I want to just bring this to everyone's attention because I, I, what should make nervous, and I wonder, you know, obviously there's some subjectivity in the idea of what people find nerve wracking, but. If the concern is about the safety of judges, let's just put this into context for a second if we can. The U.S. Marshal Service says that federal ju federal judges, not the Supreme Court, but federal judges were the target of more than 4,500 threats and other inappropriate communication comments just last year alone. In fact, there was an IG report back in June that found that the Marshal's office doesn't actually have the funding it would need to try to provide that security of the 2,700 sitting judges. And so it sort of begs the question at this point in time um, as to why is the safety of these justices so paramount, knowing that there has been risks to others who have resulted in violent threats? We've seen so far protesting in front of these homes, people walking, no arrests, I understand, have yet to be made. So for people looking at this, Joan, do you wonder why this particular issue and these protests are prompting this rallying around the justices? Is it sort of it's good to be the king. It's good to be one of the Supreme Nine. I, I think it's a sideshow right now, Laura. I think the real, the really important thing is what's going on in the building and what will be produced with that opinion. If you go to the court building itself right now, there's a huge eight-foot, newly installed eight-foot non-scalable fence ringing the whole building. There's a sign out there that says "Area Closed by Order of the Supreme Court Marshal." Mm. They've, you know that. They obviously are worried about threats, but you know, they have all of our rights in in their hands. And you know, you referred to that uh, Inspector General's report uh, about you know lower court judges who who f face a lot and are much more in the trenches sure. of the law. You know, dealing with with uh, uh, criminal and civil cases where people 
people know who they are and they can come after them. You know, there's that has been a, a problem for many years. And and uh, the U.S. Marshals Service has beefed up security for the yeah. just, judges and justices. And just so you know, Laura, I know that the justice's own security had been beefed up way before this. But well, I, I, again, on, on I that, on the, that point, I just want to say, Joan, on that point, we talk about the trenches. It must be said while we're having a conversation about the safety of judges that between 1977 and 2020, there were 11 murders, 26 attempted murders, 42 bombings, 194 arsons, and thousands of incidents of criminal activities directed at abortion providers. In fact, last year alone, 125% in reports of assault and battery outside of clinics as well. So I'm a fan, like we all are, of consistency. That has to be a part of the conversation as well. Joan Biskupic, Jeffrey Tubin, thank you so much. And by the way, there's this. Five sitting members of Congress have just been subpoenaed by the January 6th committee, including the top Republican in the House. See there? None of them, by the way, would cooperate voluntarily. But you wonder, will any now participate now that they're being compelled via subpoena to testify? And what would their colleagues in the panel do if, well, they don't comply? An extraordinary discussion and extraordinary times up next. So members of Congress are no longer asking. They're now ordering five of their own colleagues to talk. The January 6th Select Committee issuing subpoenas to key Republicans, including the highest-ranking Republican, House Minority Kevin um, McCarthy. The House Minority Leader is actually on that list. And so are Congressman Scott Perry, Andy Biggs, Mo Brooks, and also Jim Jordan. My next guests, well, they know the stakes. Norm Eisen, from his time investigating Donald Trump during his first impeachment, his book is Overcoming Trumpery, How to Restore Ethics, the Rule of Law, and Democracy. And Doug High, who was a key staffer for Eric Cantor when the Republican was House Majority Leader. Gentlemen, welcome. I'm so glad that you're both here. Let me begin with you here, Norm, because This was a decision that some say was quite politically agonizing, not because Congress doesn't have the right to subpoena people, but because there was a political calculus at stake here as well. Tell me about what that process must be like and the considerations they would have had to make. Uh, Laura, we went through these very tough subpoena calls when I was working on the Hill. Doug, the same. You know, whenever you turn around to the people you work with, Uh, whether it's Congress or anywhere else, and they've said no to you, and you're forced to serve them with legal process to force them to come uh, come in and testify, that's a very unusual act. And uh, uh, it has ramifications. Now, will there be litigation? Will there be contempt findings? Uh, If the Republicans take control of Congress, will they turn around and subpoena members uh, uh, who who they seek information from? So uh, this is a very tough decision, but it's the right decision, Laura, because these five men have key information about the insurrection, about an assault on our country and an attempted coup. 
Now, Doug, I saw you sort of smirk a little bit on that notion because it wasn't, you know, a sort of a hypothetical perspective notion of if Republicans are in control or have some power, what would they do to try to compel testimony? I mean, you were involved in the contempt proceedings against Eric Holder, the former attorney general. He was not obviously a member of Congress, but the calculus was similar in the idea of how people were expected to comply Mm -hmm. with the subpoena. Why are times so seemingly different now? Well, I think we've seen our politics change drastically in just the past five or six years. Donald Trump has fundamentally transformed American politics. Obviously, we can argue if that's if that's good or bad. But in Congress, Congress usually believes in its own primacy, meaning what it asks for, it gets. And that's true whether it's uh, an administration of the same or opposing party. And now with this very unprecedented step of subpoenaing members of Congress, Uh, We'll see what happens with that. Typically, that only happens when there's an ethics investigation. And as we so often see in ethics investigations, Congress doesn't like to penalize or really um, do anything to its to its own members unless they've really egregiously uh, violated an ethics rule. The question I have in, in this decision that they've made today is what is the plan moving forward? I've been so impressed with how this committee has uh, not had any leaks, how they've moved forward together as a team, which you don't often see. Part of that is, the, I think, the mistake that Republicans made in not ensuring that it was either an independent commission or that there were more Republican members on it. But if these members say no, what is Congress prepared to do? And I was on Capitol Hill today, and really the conversation was that the, the members of the committee, they don't really know yet. Um, and there's still discussion and dissension uh, within the committee of what happens if these members, one or all of them, say no to a subpoena. Now, of course, you know, it begs the question, Norm, of how can that be? I mean, obviously, this is not a novelty that people have essentially thumbed their nose at a congressional subpoena within the last year, let alone six months, let alone four years. And so is the plan that they don't know or is the plan that, look, you've got this sort of Damocles of a clock called the midterm calendar, an election that might very well change the time, the course of history in the future? Uh, you know, it, it is uh, a clock that is running. But it's running in a context. We've had a federal judge, absolutely extraordinary, say that Donald Trump likely committed federal crimes with co-conspirators. And the allegations about some of these members of Congress were that they may have been involved in those in those acts. But Norm, uh, you've so why, got to Norm, get Norm, the information. Why Trump, then why isn't Trump subpoenaed yet? Well, that's I think that that ultimate decision about Trump and Pence is coming, Laura. Uh, Again, that is one that we confronted in the first impeachment. And we ultimately decided to invite uh, the former president to testify. Uh, But, you know, they're getting to the hearings now. They're getting to the end game because it's a tough call. They've um, uh, 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 approached that a moment now when you've got to subpoena these members because of the seriousness of these criminal allegations and findings by a federal judge. Norm Eisen, Doug, hi. I got to tell you, one of the things that we've seen, and Doug, you know this well from your work on the RNC as well, you got to imagine there's a lot of fundraising just by the notion of the subpoenas being issued alone. So we're all going to wait and see what this all looks like. Thank you, gentlemen. Always a pleasure to speak with you both. Thanks, you know, we're also watching this story that's impacting so many families who are trying to feed their babies when there's so little formula, at times none, to go around. And the response from the White House today, well, it may not do much to reassure you, let alone any of the parents looking for that formula. But we'll also look at what not to do in order to keep your infant fed. One of the nation's top pediatricians will join me next. 
look, there is no good answer for desperate parents tonight. What there is are too many store shelves that sit empty and too many babies that are going hungry. Across the country, parents are left fearing the absolute worst. It's very stressful. It gets very stressful. It's terrifying. It's terrifying when that's the only true source of nutrition that your baby gets. Really scary wondering the next meal, am I not going to have the formula I need? And at the White House today, the Biden administration couldn't answer what parents should do. We would certainly uh, encourage any parent who has concerns about their child's health or well-being to call their doctor or pediatrician. I'm not sure that's satisfying, although I'm not sure what else they would say. But let's talk with the former president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, Dr. Lee Savio Beers. I'm glad you're here. Thank you, doctor. Doctor, I have to tell you, I'm a mother myself. Thank you. I'm a mother myself. And I remember being very scared when I had my first one, trying to figure out how to keep weight on a newborn, trying to make sure they had the nutritional values going to what seemed like a thousand doctor appointments every single week to track their milestones. Never once understanding that, of course, right now we would be where there's no formula for people on the shelves. I mean, what are people supposed to do when they're faced with the prospect that there's no formula? What are they supposed to be doing right now? Is it rationing formula? Is it finding alternate means to feed the child if there are any? What is it? Well, I, I mean, you ask such great questions and, and you really point out the, the difficult position that many families are in worrying about where to find formula for their babies. I think there's a couple of important things. You know, we're, we're seeing that the, the, the lack of formula supplies is not evenly distributed across stores and communities. So first, you know, some things that parents can do, and I, I know this is so frustrating, especially when you have a little one and you, you, you know, or you don't have great transportation, um, but one of the things you can do is really check a lot of different stores. We're finding that some of the smaller stores actually may not ha- have sold out quite as quickly. So that's one thing. I think another thing, and, and this is important, you can check with your pediatrician if you have questions, but but for many, many babies, there are only there, there are certain formulas that are out of stock, um, but others where there are where, where it is in stock. And so for most babies, you can actually substitute another formula and, and do just fine in the meantime. So so those are a couple things you can do though. There are special circumstances where you do need to talk to your your doctor about that. Um, what I would say, I absolutely don't recommend doing, and I know this is hard, but but you know sometimes parents say, well, could I could I water down the formula? Could I make it more dilute? And we don't recommend that. It's actually not not safe and can actually cause serious problems for babies. Yeah, that's so important of the what not to do, because obviously there's that phrase, desperate times call for desperate measures, but there are certain acts of desperation that could be very harmful to your child, um, even more so than what seems like a deprivation of nutrition. But how about trying to find alternate sources? You mentioned the idea of availability of other formulas. You know, I remember my babies, I was I was able to breastfeed both of my children and I supplemented late in, in, in the stage about that, but my kids didn't take every type. I mean, when it came to formula, they vomited some kinds out. If it was, it was powder, had to be ready-made liquid if you even gave it to them. What are parents to do in terms of acclimating their children possibly, or a baby to figuring out whether it's actually a medical risk and them vomiting it up or that they're just trying to acclimate to the new product. 
Right. No, it's a great question. And and the first thing I would say is if you have if you do have questions, if your baby's not tolerating it, tolerating it, don't hesitate to reach out to your pediatrician. But I, I think some of the things that parents can do um, to acclimate, if you if for one, if you have a little bit of the old formula, you could you could mix up both formulas and then mix them a little bit um, so that 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 your baby sometimes the taste is a little bit different and the baby can get used to the taste. Um, you know, making sure that when you do feed your baby, let them they drink just little bits at a time, you know, take take a second or two break, then a little bit more so that they're drinking it slowly and getting it used to it. And also just being reassured that that nutritionally, most of these formulas are very similar, very much the same. Um, and so medically, it's it, it, it's 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 great for your baby. It's perfectly fine to, to switch formulas. And, and sometimes it just takes a little getting used to. You mean those that are on the shelf that obviously are talking about that, you know, not going online maybe per se, and there's some concerns about um, going outside of the country to get formula. But I know you're talking about those that are recommended, that are asking a pediatrician about these issues. I do wonder in this I issue about it, how long? For many parents, you're talking about, and one woman said that she was concerned about you know, how long she could sustain. When I think about how important mm -hmm. nutrition is to a developing baby's mind, hitting the milestones, long-term consequences of malnutrition, things you should not expect to have happen in an economy or a nation such as this, what are the long-term consequences? And, and is there a sort of a, a moment when it becomes so critical that this must be resolved? Well, it, well, I mean, first of all, I want to say, I mean, absolutely, we want to make sure that every baby has the formula they need when they need it. And we are in a difficult time right now where some families and some communities are are having trouble accessing that formula in a timely way. And so so I think the first thing is we really do have to be working together as as communities to, to try to make sure we get the formula where it where it needs to be for families because we, we don't want babies to go without nutrition. And I think you do point out it's also really worth emphasizing that there are risks um, to babies for these alternate feeding methods too. For diluting formula or a homemade formula, there can be immediate consequences to the to to the to that 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 alternate feeding um, where where babies can have immediate consequences of of getting quite ill, sometimes having seizures or or even occasionally babies will 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 suffer death from that. Um, but there's also the long-term consequences of poor nutrition from the alternate formulas either. So, so as well. So I, I think it's, it's uh, important point that you bring up. And so the most important thing is for us to be working together to get families, the, the formula they need. Um, uh, we really do ask families uh, not to hoard formula. Um, it's important to plan in advance a little bit, but also um, not to buy up more than about 10 to 14 days of formula for your child to make sure that, that everybody has access to the formula they need while we, we can get these, these issues corrected. It's a difficult prospect. Dr. Lee, Savio, um, Savio Beers, thank you. And I, I note, of course, that Abbott, by the way, is still t telling everyone that they're waiting on FDA approval to restart their plan. And it could take up to 10 weeks to get its product even back on the shelf. So the question of how much longer, and I, I just keep going in my mind, this is, these are women who carried during a pandemic thinking now they have to deal with this issue of a supply chain shortage of formula for their children's. Doctor, thank you. And by the way, also very concerning is this the mysterious hepatitis outbreak among children in at least 25 states now. Several young children have even died and dozens of others hospitalized. And there is no clear cause of what has caused any of this. Our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, takes us inside one family's battle. That's next.
As if a formula shortage wasn't scary enough for parents, the CDC is investigating more than 100 cases of severe hepatitis in children. The government doesn't know what's behind the outbreaks, but the symptoms range from upset stomach to liver inflammation. CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta met with parents of a two-year-old who contracted hepatitis and needed a liver transplant. What is this? Can I take it? No. The first thing Kelsey Schwab wanted to show me was that her two-year-old daughter, Balin, had always been fiercely independent. Balin is Balin. She just kind of toots her own drum and does her own thing. But on April 22nd, everything changed, and a true medical mystery began. We woke up, and she had hives all over her body. So I took her to the doctor, and they did give her epinephrine and then sent us over to the ER to be monitored. Everything was fine. She went home. The next day, we woke up, and I was like, oh, her eyes look a little bit yellow. She yeah. wasn't acting any different. No. And um, her eyes were just a little bit yellow. It was just a little bit of jaundice. A couple hours later, we got a call back saying, you need to get to the hospital now, and they're going to fly you there. Over the next couple of days, Balin's numbers didn't improve. Normal liver numbers are in 30s. I think at one point, it was 7,000. <laughs> Dr. Heli Bott is a pediatric hepatologist. That's a doctor who specializes in the liver. She was one of the first doctors to treat Balin after she was airlifted to the University of Minnesota's Masonic Children's Hospital. In your career, have you seen something like this before? No. I think we, I have definitely seen multiple cases of acute hepatitis and acute liver failure. But the fact that there are so many in such less time, I have not seen an outbreak like this in my career. What happened to Balin is extremely rare. But at least 109 times over the past few months, it's been the same story. A relatively healthy child whose eyes start to turn yellow, loses their appetite, and within days, their livers severely inflamed. According to the CDC, at least 98 children in this hepatitis outbreak had been hospitalized. 15 had liver transplants. Five have died. And there is no clear explanation why. What is striking about this is the number of cases in the period of time and kind of all over the world, and also following this huge pandemic. Do you draw a connection then between the pandemic and what is happening with these kids' hepatitis? One of the things that I question is, is did these kids ever have COVID, you know? Uh, kids can go asymptomatic with COVID, but then have all these inflammatory side effects. Should that be part of the diagnostic testing? Should these kids be getting tested for their antibodies to COVID? I do think that is something we should be testing so that we can, we can know whether it is related to that or not. Valen did have COVID, but for many others, we don't know. For now, the CDC isn't currently recommending testing for COVID antibodies in these children, and instead focusing on adenovirus, a virus that is usually linked to the common cold and more than half the children have tested positive for. Dr. Bott isn't so sure. Because while Balin did test positive for adenovirus in her blood, there wasn't any evidence of it in her liver. So this is adenoviral staining. This is a control. And this is Balin's liver. So it did not stain at all. But you weren't seeing it in her in liver. In the liver, yeah. She would start shaking and she would, you know, had a hard time sitting up and like she couldn't hold her head up. And just like watching her go through that was like, this is not my kid. Even though her doctors struggled to understand how this all happened, it was clear what needed to be done to save her, a transplant. And within two weeks of Balin first breaking out in hives, remarkably, she had a donor, a 16-year-old who was a match. My happiest day is their saddest day, and that's been one of the biggest 
struggles for us, I guess, is trying to come to terms with like tragedy is going to happen, whether we need the liver or not. Simply fitting the lobes from a 16-year-old's liver into Balin was a challenge, but the seven-hour operation, a success. How quickly did her numbers after the transplant return to normal? Does it happen immediately? Yeah, it happens within days, so within hours to days. How is Balin doing now? She's playing with Play-Doh and um, starting to talk a little bit more, and she's asking for food and asking for juice. So we're slowly getting back to Balin, but I'm not very patient. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins me now. Sanjay, that was so difficult to think about the time span. Within two weeks of having hives, a little girl has a liver transplant. How is she doing today, little Balin? Yeah, I, it is It is a remarkably fast thing. And that's been one of the things about this, uh, this outbreak is that, you know, these are mostly healthy kids, you know, sort of average age two. And uh, they, they can progress very quickly. She's doing well, uh, Laura. I mean, that's amazing. You saw her at the end there. She's uh, sort of bossing the nurses around, a very spirited young girl. Um, and it's, it's remarkable how quickly she's recovered. This operation, this big operation, was just about a week ago. So from that standpoint, she's doing well, but she's got a lifetime of immunosuppressive drugs, constant monitoring, and still trying to figure out exactly what happened here. And I'm so glad that you inquired about the idea of the correlation between COVID and, of course, other viruses and trying to rule out or figure out what happened for so many other parents. Right. And Dr. Sanjay Gupta, I, I have to ask you, I mean, you know, this is a horrible milestone was reached today. The one millionth person in the U.S. to have died from COVID-19. And what a grim milestone. And one, I think many people mm-hmm. think that COVID seems to be over, but you're talking about the one millionth person today alone. Sorry, Sanjay, I, 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 I think lost you there. But I, yeah, I mean, just the, just yeah, the idea you, of that you, grim milestone. What do you make of the fact that people think oftentimes that COVID is done? It's not. You still have people dying in the one millionth right. person today. I know. It, it's, it's um, and, and there's hundreds of people still dying every day, Laura. That, that's the thing. I think people understandably want to look at this in the rearview mirror. Uh, but it is a grim milestone. I think what really strikes me the most is that some 700,000 people have died since the vaccines were first authorized. That, that's the thing. We know how protective these vaccines can be against people getting severely ill and dying. And yet more people have died since the authorization because, uh, you know, there's, there's still so many people who haven't gotten that immunity from these. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, that in and of itself is grim. Thank you so much. And you. yet another surprising story about health and the pandemic. The question is, did the biggest names in the meat industry lie about the threat of supply shortages just to keep their plants running, no matter the risk to their workers? We've got a key lawmaker here to take us through the findings up next. An outrageous new report from a congressional committee reveals just how far the nation's top meat producers went to deceive the public, skirting COVID restrictions and putting the country possibly at risk. The investigation finds companies like Smithfield and Tyson lobbied the Trump administration to keep their plants open through the height of the pandemic in 2020. How? By misrepresenting the health risks to its workers and warning about a meat shortage that wasn't, it seemed, actually happening. Tyson even took out a full-page ad in several newspapers calling their company, quote, as essential as health care. 
Well, by the end of that same year, at least 269 meatpacking workers would die of COVID, and nearly 60,000 would contract the virus. Joining me now is Congressman Raja Krishnamurthy. He's a member of the COVID Select Committee that's issued today's report. Congressman, I'm glad you're here. I know there's a lot of focus on the committees involving January 6th, but to me, this is a ginormous story. It's one in which you have to really think about what was at stake and the calculated risks that were taken on behalf of employees of industries that we know as a nation we rely on. But could it really be that we were duped into thinking that there were going to be shortages as a way to just keep the plants open? Well, it seems that way. Um, You know, basically what happened was uh, the meat industry claimed that there was a shortage of meat for domestic consumption. But at the same time, they were saying that the CEOs of these companies were saying there was more than enough meat to export to other countries. Uh, And of course, those two statements can't be reconciled very well. But you're absolutely right. Meat industry executives also knew that there was a huge risk of outbreaks of infections in their factories. Uh, Secondly, the USDA knew about this as well, and they turned a blind eye. And then third, and this is perhaps uh, the most shocking thing, they were able to get the Trump administration to issue an executive order to shield them from any oversight, especially from what the industry executives called pesky local and state health authorities who were slowly trying to provide more oversight uh, of these outbreaks. And they were able to get workers to stay on the job and to shield themselves from any liability associated with worker conditions. I think that last part is so important, the idea of anticipating that there would likely be infections and deaths and a way to shield from liability. But I do wonder, you know, thinking about the Trump administration in particular, in any administration, you're going to be relying on those who have the expertise and in whose wheelhouse these areas fall. So was the Trump administration somehow wrong to rely on what was being said? Or was it the actual companies and corporations and their legal teams who misled the Trump administration into believing that this was an executive order that needed to be actually implemented? Well, actually, what they ended up doing was these industry executives were able to go to the political appointees at the Trump administration in this in the agency uh, with jurisdiction, namely the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, and essentially get them to override and sideline the career public health officials who would otherwise make decisions about worker safety. Ironically enough, the Undersecretary for Worker Safety at the USDA was precisely the person who tried to shield these companies from liability and oversight with regard to worker conditions. And on the worker conditions, I mean, we're talking about in these meatpacking processing plants, you know, the definition many times of a super spreading event, the idea of close proximity, the idea of rates of infection, the transmissibility factors all there. I remember back in April of 2020 when many people were you know, going out, trying to get as much meat as they could or things that could freeze if they had the capacity to do so, dry goods, because there was an expectation, much like maybe toilet paper or Clorox wipes and the like and, and, and um, hand sanitizer, it was going to be gone. And then what do you do? And so if there really was never going to be a shortage there, I wonder, Congressman, what can be done about it? Because if they've gone to great lengths to try to shield from liability, what is the intention now that a congressional committee is going to do something about this? 
Well, we're continuing the investigation, and if there are any violations of the law, we're going to refer them to the proper authorities to prosecute. But there's another aspect of this that I wanted to just bring to your attention, which is we've also started a separate investigation with regard to the prices uh, that have gone up and up with regard to meat. Um, Basically, meat prices have gone up by double digits, upwards of 20% in many cases for most consumers. And yet, although input costs or the cost of doing business for these meatpacking companies has gone up somewhat, they have enjoyed uh, net income growth of 500% over the last couple of years. And so basically the bottom line is they were ignoring worker safety conditions. They were making all these uh, false claims about a shortage of meat and so forth in the pursuit of profits. And those profits were huge. And it's partly an outgrowth of their influence with the Trump administration, but also their market power, uh, given that basically four companies control the vast majority of the meat processing industry. Congressman Krishnamurthy, thank you. We'll follow this. Thank you. Unbelievable. Thank you for watching Don Lemon Tonight. Starts, of course, with Don Lemon right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.